Hello, welcome to the first episode of our podcast, Be Seen, the Sonia Stani Civil and Environmental Engineering Podcast at USC Viterbi School of Engineering. I'm Emily, and I'm your co-host, and with me is your other co-host, Christine. Hello. We are the advisors in the department, and we look forward to sharing some insight about our community. This podcast will give you a peek behind the scenes of our department, our groundbreaking research, student organizations, and other opportunities our community are engaged in. Enjoy. And here in California, the state is suffering through a drought. More than a quarter is experiencing exceptional drought that has some communities restricting everyday activities like taking a shower, activities that most of us take for granted. We're walking on a lake bed right now. We should be underwater, and this is where your town's water comes from. Does it concern you? Deeply. A million people in the state of California can't get access to safe or affordable drinking water. This is not Flint, Michigan. This is the state of California. What do you do when there's a serious drought and your entire livelihood relies on having water? Well, with the drought rapidly drying up reservoirs, farmers are desperately searching for any new source of water. As a result of the lack of significant rain and depleted reservoirs, the state of California has been asking communities to conserve water. The new restrictions mean no refilling swimming pools or fountains. You can't wash your car in your driveway and outdoor irrigation is prohibited. There's no irrigation at all until June. None? None. It's just ridiculous that we're using, think about it, fresh water to flush toilets. I'm Dan McCurry, I'm assistant professor of environmental engineering here in the CEE department. Um, been at USC for about five years and uh, do research on water reuse and teach classes on water treatment. Hi, um, Isabel Blumel. I'm a senior in environmental engineering. Been here for almost four years and uh, yeah, enjoying my time. Thanks for having me. So yeah, we do research on mostly uh, wastewater reuse in my lab, so processes for turning things like uh, domestic sewage, um, what you flush down the toilet, into something that's drinkable, uh, which sounds maybe gross, but um, there's a saying in environmental engineering that you can take the dirtiest water on earth and turn it into the cleanest water on earth if you're willing to pass it through enough money. And so we uh, invent the money into clean water machines and study the ones that exist already to uh, sort of optimize their performance. Our overall sort of guiding philosophy is that we want to make recycled water even safer than ordinary tap water um, so that there's no question whatsoever about its suitability for human consumption. Important topic these days because in places like LA, um, we actually import about 90% of our water from hundreds of miles away. A lot of people don't realize that. Uh, And you may have seen this if you're driving up to five, you see those big rows of parallel pipes. So those are bringing water from Northern California, um, from a couple of aqueducts that, that stretch from the Sacramento River Delta on one side and the Owens Valley on the other side. Water from the Owens Valley comes through um, an aqueduct dug by William Mulholland, uh, which was in that movie Chinatown, which every environmental engineer should see. I'm doing it. going to be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not going to get. Oh, that's all taken care of. See, Mr. Gibbs, either you bring the water to L.A. or you bring L.A. to the water.
And the other source is the Colorado River, which brings water from Colorado and, and the Rockies um, hundreds and hundreds of miles to, to California. And so the problem with all of that is that all of those aqueducts are fed by snowmelt. So the Northern California ones are, are fed by a melting snowpack in the Sierras, and the Colorado River aqueduct is fed by the Rockies. Um, and the problem is that that snowpack has become more and more unreliable uh, in recent years and seems to be in general long-term decline um, as climate change affects weather patterns and things like that. So we have certain years of so-called snow drought, like in 2015, where there's almost no snow at all in the Sierras. And so um, the source feeding those aqueducts is drying up. And uh, also, it's just not very sustainable to bring water hundreds and hundreds of miles to Southern California, um, especially because, you know, here in LA, we're in a basin surrounded by mountains. And so you have to get the water over those mountains, and water is really heavy. One of the aqueducts from Northern California has to go over this pass. It's actually right next to the five. It's a 2,000-foot pass, which is the highest water lift in the world. It um, consumes an enormous amount of energy. When they, um, when they throw the pumps on, at the, the biggest pumping station for that called Edmonston. I think while they're running, it consumes something like 3% of California's electricity. Like they have their own power generating station right there at the pump. Um, and so that's fairly unsustainable. What we work on, yeah, is, is a, a way to produce water locally in a more sustainable way. Um, there are other options besides water reuse as well, like desalination, of course. Um, but desalination has a couple big problems that kind of hamstring it. One is that it um, consumes a lot of energy because to separate salt from water, you have to push it really hard through these really tight membranes. And just running the pumps to do that uh, means that seawater desalination costs about five times as much energy as conventional water treatment, like treating water from a river or, or the ground. Um, the other thing is that you have to deal with the brine from desalination. So, you know, when people imagine seawater desalination, they're typically picturing taking like a gallon of water out of the ocean and turning it into a gallon of fresh water and a little pile of salt. Um, what actually happens is that you turn that gallon of seawater into a half gallon of fresh water and a half gallon of double salty seawater that we call brine. Then you have to do something with that brine, and you might think, well, we can just put it back in the ocean. There's a lot of salt there already. Um, but the organisms in the ocean aren't used to you know, 2x saltiness versus the regular ocean. And so um, at the point of discharge of that brine, it can cause a lot of problems for the, the organisms in the ocean. So there's a lot of work um, on the sort of, let's say, fluid mechanics side of things about how to most effectively sort of disperse that, uh, that brine in a way that like dilutes it really quickly um, using like you know, subsurface manifolds and stuff like that. But, but at the end of the day, the energy obstacle and the brine management obstacle mean that um, I think water reuse probably has a bigger future in places like Southern California than desalination, um, since desal is so costly and comes with environmental consequences as well. So most of the research in my group focuses specifically on the chemicals in wastewater. Obviously, wastewater is pretty dirty stuff. It includes other things you'd want to get rid of besides chemicals, like pathogens, you know, bacteria and viruses. Um, other people study those, but I mostly study the chemical contaminants, so things like uh, pharmaceuticals that might get flushed down the drain or excreted, um, and also things like uh, industrial solvents that maybe shouldn't be in the wastewater in the first place, but end up there by, you know nefarious means. On a day-to-day -day basis, we do a lot of analytical chemistry. So what that means is taking samples of water and, and processing them with some kind of extraction technique where we get the chemicals out of the water into a little tiny sample and then end up uh, running that on one of our analytical instruments. Most of what we use are called mass spectrometers, which might sound familiar from like a you know, Chem 101 class. Uh, and basically, they separate the compounds by their mass, which allows us to see um, really, really tiny amounts of chemicals because we've filtered out all the uh, background noise. And the reason we might want to do that is some of these chemicals are potentially toxic at very low levels, like nanograms per liter. So that's uh, on the order of, you know, a drop in an Olympic swimming pool. Toxicity varies hugely for different types of chemicals, but some of them, like this one that we've spent some effort on called NDMA, um, the uh, California regulators have a limit on that in drinking water that's 10 nanograms per liter. Um, so that's 10 
10 parts per trillion. As drinking water, though, not just like water your yard. like. Correct, yeah. So there's much less uh, public hesitance about non-potable reuse, yeah. Um, which is, yeah, where you produce water for watering golf courses or yards or even sometimes crops. Non-potable reuse is treated to a much lower standard than drinking water. But the problem with non-potable reuse is that it requires completely parallel infrastructure to ordinary water distribution. So in other words, if you had a non-potable reuse um, plant at a major scale to irrigate everybody's lawn in LA, um, you would have to have twice as many pipes in LA to transmit the water. And and that's just pretty costly. Like at this point with the city so built up, it's um, kind of infeasible to imagine ripping up you know, every single street and laying in a second, you know, non-potable water main next to the drinking water one. Um, I think it's something like 80% of the water that's imported from Northern California is used for agriculture in the Central Valley. I can't remember what the exact number is, but somewhere around there, 70, 80%. You know, the farmers always want more of it because that's very fertile land up there and there's essentially infinite sunshine. And so anything will grow like crazy if you water it enough. You know, there's those signs that say like Congress created the Dust Bowl and stuff like that. It's a, yeah. it's a big political fight, but um, you know, if we made more of our own water down here, then we wouldn't have to use as much of the water from Northern California. And so, you know, potentially more of that could be allocated to farmers. Um, I feel like the farmers are probably better off or it would be better for all of us if they just got more efficient with their water use. Um, so in, in other parts of the world where water is really scarce, um, they've, they've taken to really like um, more precise and high-tech ways of doing farming to uh, do, for instance, like drip irrigation at the ground level rather than just spraying it in those huge sprinklers. Because when you do that, you know, that big radiative spray, obviously some of that water is just going to evaporate. And, they, you know, you'll also see them doing it during the hottest part of the day, which, you know, we're always told not to do if you're watering your lawn or something. Um, so really, I mean, I think that there's a lot more the farmers could be doing, but at the same time, yeah, there's, there are, you know, you'll see fallowed fields in the Central Valley where they just don't have enough to grow anything. And so if we made more of our own, maybe we could uh, leave a little bit more for them potentially, or just leave more where, where it kind of is naturally. Thank you so much for sharing that. Did you want to share a little bit about what you do in the lab as well? Sure. I worked with Jean, who just recently left for her job at the EPA. So we looked at disinfection byproducts, which is like another major barrier to water reuse. So disinfection byproducts result from when natural organic matter, like in wastewater, reacts with ozone or chlorine and then just forms these like nasty chemicals that are just bad, like carcinogenic and basically you don't want them in the water. These natural compounds you said? So wastewater like just has a ton of stuff in it, right? Because it's, you know, um, gone through a lot. I'm sorry, that's not... I'm trying to think of a better way to say it. It's had a tough time. (laughs) There's a lot of random like things in it. Yeah. And basically all of the random things react with treatment processes, which then form chemicals that are bad for you, which is like, yeah, that's like kind of a way to describe disinfection byproducts. So we looked at specifically amine disinfection byproducts that they're just nitrogenous so they have nitrogen we were just looking at ways to decrease the formation of disinfection byproducts using this method called derivatization where you just you kind of just prevent the formation of the disinfection byproduct in the first place by preventing the reaction yeah chemical derivatization is this tool we sort of borrowed from the organic chemistry literature Organic chemists use it for all kinds of other purposes, usually for building molecules. Uh, We're on the more environmental chemistry side of things. So we're essentially doing organic chemistry in reverse. 
um, trying to you know take apart the toxic organic molecules rather than putting them together. So these derivatization techniques allow us to selectively identify what the precursors of certain disinfection byproducts in wastewater are. As Isabel was just saying, the, the basic idea is we lock up the reactive site of the precursor chemical that we suspect is responsible for these byproducts with a derivatization reaction, which just basically means we, we put another chunk onto the molecule that blocks off the reactive site. Then when you hit the wastewater with the disinfectant, whether it's chlorine, which is just bleach, or, or ozone, which we can make from um, just zapping oxygen with electricity, uh, it's the same ozone that's in, in the atmosphere as well. Then if the formation of the byproducts we're interested in goes down, it means that whatever we've derivatized was the precursor that was responsible for it. So we wouldn't actually use these derivatization agents as a treatment technique in a, a plant. You know, It's just a research tool for us to be able to figure out what the actual precursors are. And then once we know what they are, maybe we can either re-engineer treatment a little bit to remove move them better um, or prevent them from reacting in the first place, or even better, if we could do some kind of source control and prevent them from getting in the uh, the water in the first place. So, uh, you know, a major category of, of precursor compounds that we've studied in wastewater are stimulant drugs, um, which turn out to be very efficient precursors toward this class of byproducts we study called halonitromethanes, which is kind of a mouthful. It's a class of chemicals. It's got one carbon, three either chlorines or bromines, and then a nitro group, an NO2 group. The sort of flagship of that chemical class is uh, called chloropicrin, which was used as a, as a chemical weapon in World War One. It's quite bad for you. And uh, so, so we found out uh, in my first PhD student's thesis research that the likely precursors of that in water reuse are certain stimulant drugs, which all have the same functional group, the same piece of the molecule. And that's often true for, for many different classes of drugs. Chemicals that tend to do the same things tend to kind of look similar. And many stimulant drugs have this, this functional group called an N-methylamine group. It just means you have a nitrogen with like a methyl group hanging off of it, a CH3. And um, so you can transform that into these halonitromethane compounds very, very efficiently like 100% yield. Uh, and so one possible solution to that is just prevent those things from ending up in wastewater. So a certain amount of it is a little bit unavoidable. If somebody's taking, for instance, pseudoephedrine, which is just pseudofed for a you know, flu or something like that, they're going to excrete a certain percentage of that in their, in their urine, which goes into the sewage because we um, seldom completely metabolize all the drugs we take. But something that we maybe can control is more on the deliberate disposal side. So decades ago, people were told if they had drugs that they weren't using anymore, pharmaceuticals, they were supposed to flush them down the toilet, right? That was what you were told to do so that your kids didn't get into them or whatever. There's a lot of work to be done, but there already have been campaigns for public education about this to tell people not to flush their drugs and also sort of um, uh, reverse distribution sites, like an amnesty box for these drugs that you can go drop them off at the pharmacy. So more of that might be needed in the future to keep these things from getting in the wastewater in the first place. Well, did you always know when you came to USC you wanted to get involved in research? Or I actually worked in a couple labs before joining Dan's. Um, I think I saw an email one time for the first one, it was during the summer, and I was like, oh, I'm not doing anything. I have to take physics during the summer anyway. <laughs> Might as well just do something during the summer. And then I think for Dan's, you had an opening, and then I just got contacted. Yeah, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was so... Um, uh, Jean, who Isabel mentioned already, was a, a postdoc in my lab for a couple of years, postdoctoral researcher. And I think she needed some help in the lab um, around a year, year and a half ago, which was shortly after Isabel had taken my class, uh, ENE 200, which is our sophomore environmental engineering class. And uh, so I think I emailed maybe a few of the, the people who had done well in that class to see if anybody was free. Kind of just like happened totally coincidentally. I think something like uh, over the last two years three or four different people from that specific class ended up in my research group. I'm also just like curious about what like a week in the lab looks like for you. Normally I'll come in and Jean has like an experiment she needs me to do or something. So she'll walk me through it. 
and then I'll start it that day, and then normally I mess up somewhere, so I so I need a you know need another day to 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 continue, and then we normally have our group meetings on Fridays. So then sometimes I'll do work before, and then um, on Fridays, like someone always presents either their own work or just a random paper that they're interested in. So yeah, it's like three or four days a week. Beagler Hall, which is where we all are, it's like a shared lab space. There's a bunch of desks, computers, labs. So it's also kind of like a nice social environment too. So I never feel like I'm just like alone in the lab, like crying. Like it feels... It's it's a very good work environment, I would say. The weeks leading up to the conference we went to in San Diego were, were a bit more strenuous because uh, we did have some slight issues with the data we needed to to present at the conference. But generally, like it's it's pretty chill. It's fun. Yeah, Jean's nice. Dan's nice. Isabel was not paid to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What was the thing that the Sophias did? The Sophias. Yeah, so we, we have currently two undergrad researchers in the lab, both named Sophia, um, spelled differently, though. One is S-O-P-H-I-A, and one is S-O-F-I-J-A. Fortunately, there was another Sophia in the lab who graduated right before the other ones yeah. joined. Uh, Sophia Plata was a PhD student who graduated last fall, um, so that could have gotten very confusing. So they, they both work with my PhD student, Morella Shamel, on uh, two different projects. One is kind of a methods development project. So there's two different classes of these disinfection byproduct compounds that are regulated by the EPA right now. Um, most of the work we do is on unregulated compounds that might someday be regulated in the future, and so that's why we try to figure out how to make them not form in the first place in case they become regulated. The compounds that are regulated, they're called THMs and HAAs, which stands for trihalomethanes and haloacetic acids, not super important. Um, But they're typically measured by two different methods that are uh, published by the EPA. The EPA regulates these chemicals. They um, require drinking water plants to measure them uh, every so often. And so for those measurements, it's it's two separate methods. And so one of the Sophias uh, is working on trying to combine those two into a single analytical method that can measure all nine chemicals at once um, with a single run on an instrument we have called a GCMS. Uh, and the hope is that with minimal sample processing and maybe a 20-minute runtime on the instrument, we could get the concentration of all nine chemicals, um, which would roughly cut in half the amount of effort to monitor these things. So that research is, is more like analytical chemistry than environmental engineering um, on the, the method development side of things. The other Sophia, um, Sophia R, works on um, gray water reuse, uh, also with Morella, on Morella's kind of main PhD project. Um, so, so I got interested a few years ago in the fate of these chemicals in gray water called parabens, which you've probably heard of or seen somewhere. Um, I was kind of dimly aware that these were antimicrobial compounds added to certain products to you know, keep them from rotting, um, but didn't really know what they were. And so I was, I was walking around in the grocery store one time, I think it was Whole Foods, and they had a sign for paraben-free wipes. It got me thinking like, well, what is a paraben? And so I looked up you know, its chemical structure. The first thing I do when I'm thinking about a new chemical is I just read the Wikipedia article about it. No shame in that. Uh, gotten a lot out of that website. <laughs> I have an article on Wikipedia. You wrote one? Yeah, I, I was forced to for my engineering writing class. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, if you look up infrastructure on Wikipedia and you look at the sustainable infrastructure part, I, I added that. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like 90% of Wikipedia is probably written by like board graduate students. 
but yeah so anyway so for that project um you know because parabens are in all kinds of stuff that goes down the drain like um you know soaps and shampoos and things like that we reasoned that there'd be quite a bit of them in gray water in a typical sewage system the water from the drains sink and, and shower uh mix with the water from the toilet and form sewage right but there's um, some interest in gray water reuse which is if we can separate the water uh that's a bit less dirty coming from sink and shower drains from the what we call black water coming out of the toilet um, maybe we can reuse that gray water a bit more easily than the black water because there's presumably much lower concentrations of pathogens and chemicals and things like that in it. And so we figured there'd be a bunch of parabens in gray water and so and got interested in their fate. And when I looked at the chemical structure of it, um, it looks like something that would be a very good precursor for these THM compounds I mentioned earlier that are regulated by the EPA. Um, so Morella's main PhD project is on understanding the fate of parabens during gray water reuse and uh, how well they're transformed into these, um, uh, these THM compounds during disinfection with chlorine, which happens for almost any water treatment process. Um, so, so part of it is like really kind of hardcore organic chemistry to figure out the reaction mechanism, um, but also part of it is, is maybe more fun field work going around to gray water reuse sites uh, in Southern California. We were fortunate enough, and, and Morello was very persistent, uh, I, I should say, in finding a gray water um, uh, installation company or a gray water reuse installation company um, that would let her basically shadow them when they go on maintenance visits and, and collect water from their systems uh, so that we could do our tests. Because gray water is generally not recycled at a uh, infrastructure scale. It tends to be decentralized projects at you know somebody's house or a single office building or something like that. That actually makes it kind of harder for us to find sites to go. Because you know if we need wastewater, you know, just drive down to Hyperion, right? It's humongous. Like everybody knows where it is. But uh, finding gray water to, to sample is a little bit trickier. Is the outlook for water good then? I mean, I'm hearing this. I'm like, do, should I stay in California? Like, do I need to go? I mean, because we don't have water, we have fires. And then like... Well, I mean, there's uh, there's wa- issues with water supply and water quality everywhere. Um, you know, we, we're always dealing with water scarcity in California, but, you know, many other places you could move to would have the same problem. Go to Arizona or New Mexico or something like that, there's water scarcity. And, and even parts of the country that you would think would never have water scarcity as a problem are, are starting to. So there's, uh, believe it or not, water reuse projects being built in places like Florida and Georgia and Virginia, um, where, you know, it rains, right? In the eastern half of the country, it rains pretty routinely versus here, we only get it for part of the year. Besides water quantity, there's major water quality problems too in, in other parts of the country we might think of as sort of wet. So like um, a classic example is in uh, like the eastern part of Texas. Um, there's a river that runs from Dallas to Houston called the Trinity River. And uh, the Trinity River is, you know, it's got water in it all year. And uh, it's what Houston uses for part of their water supply. The thing is, though, uh, before humans lived in Texas, or at least before large-scale civilization was was built in Texas, um, the Trinity River was ephemeral, meaning it only existed for part of the year, and the rest of the year it would just be a dry riverbed. Currently, it has water all the time, and the reason for that is that it's full of Dallas's treated wastewater. And so even though Houston, which you think of as a, a pretty wet place, like it rains in Houston, um, one of their main water sources during certain portions of the year is essentially 100% Dallas wastewater that's just gone a couple hundred miles downstream. But like treated wastewater, right? Treated wastewater. But the thing is, so, so when we treat wastewater, you know, like at plants like Hyperion, the standards for water quality for discharge into the environment, which is what happens after wastewater treatment, are much different than what we use for drinking water. So, for instance, wastewater is not always required to even be disinfected. Um, so, you know, it can be a serious pathogen risk if you're, like, swimming in a river that's been subject to untreated wastewater discharge. I spent some time in Connecticut in grad school, and the Connecticut River, which flows through the state, is seasonally disinfected because people swim in that river and fish in it, but generally only in the summer because it's in the northeast. So in the winter, they don't worry about it. So, really, you just have to quit worrying and 
and learn to embrace technology, I think. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, water quality being bad everywhere, you know, it's not good for civilization, but it is good for environmental engineers in terms of being a full employment program for us. Yeah, that's true. I was told for job security purposes, working in water in California is one of the ways to <laughs> one of the ways to go. Yeah, kind of off of that, like, what are you interested in doing? So once you have your degree? <sighs> oh, um, I'm going to be honest. Grad school was kind of a way to uh, hopefully not think about it as much, which maybe sounds weird, but I felt like going... Like, I didn't feel ready to go directly into the job market with, like, a real, like, adult job versus an internship or something else. Because I just felt like I did not, not that I don't know enough, but I, like, wanted to learn more specifically about what I wanted to do within environmental engineering. Because although we talk a lot about water, because it is, like, water is such a big issue, like, there's a lot of aspects of environmental engineering. So I'm hoping, I guess, to, um, like, you know, become more specific with what I want to do. I'd also be curious how you ended up deciding to pursue this in a research and and academia setting. Yeah, I kind of knew pretty early on this is what I wanted to do. A lot of people, I think, kind of, sleepwalk their way into a PhD because it's a way to not decide what to do with your life. You can just keep staying in school. and But then eventually you run out of school and you have to do something else. But but no, no I, I knew pretty early on. Um, I think I decided this is what I wanted to do when I was a sophomore, maybe. I signed up for engineering school and not really knowing anything about engineering when I was in high school. Um, I think my original declared major was mechanical engineering. And then I remember looking at like the mechanical engineering department website uh, where I was going to undergrad and their mission statement said something like, you know, exploiting the resources of nature for human purposes or something like that. I don't I don't remember the exact wording it was a while ago, but it, it just like set off alarm bells because I was a young hippie spending my weekends in the woods. And so anyway, so then I got to college and then I heard the term environmental engineering, having no idea what that actually was, but I knew that it sounded better than mechanical to me. So I signed up for that. And then my freshman year, um, and I couldn't actually be an environmental engineering major because unlike here where we have that major, um, where I went to undergrad, there was only a civil major where you could do an environmental specialty, but it was really just two or three environmental classes. But my first year of civil engineering school, I remember having to go to these mandatory weekly seminars where they would have industry people come present about what they work on. And uh, so one week, somebody came in and talked about uh, concrete pipe for an hour. And how concrete pipe is the best type of pipe and you should never consider iron or plastic pipe because it's, you know, a waste of resources or time or something. And then uh, the next week, a guy came in and talked about iron pipe for for an hour <laughs> and why iron pipe was so much better than concrete pipe. And I was like, if this is what engineering is, I'm done. You know, I'm out of here. And I was really enjoying all the math and science classes I took. So I seriously thought about switching to either like a math or chemistry major. Um, but then at sort of the last minute, the summer after freshman year, I did a, a summer internship in research in the civil engineering department. I knew I didn't want to be a civil engineer, but it was, you know, I needed a job and it was available. And so I spent a summer uh, testing bolted steel connections um, like for, for structures. And that was kind of fun. I got to learn how to weld and tear apart pieces of steel. And so anyway, like I knew I didn't want to be a civil engineer, but it made me realize that research was where I could find intellectual stimulation within engineering, that it wasn't just all arguing about pipe. Uh, and there was an opportunity to you know be analytical in a way that I had learned to really enjoy in my science classes. So then I decided, well, if I can stick in research, then maybe I'll stay as an engineer. 
And uh, so then shortly after that, I ended up um, getting an internship at the EPA in their drinking water research uh, office in Cincinnati, actually the same place Gene just got a job. And so I did three and a half years of undergrad research there. Uh, my undergrad was five years because we had a co-op program where your middle three years you work every other quarter. And uh, yeah, it just convinced me I wanted to do research for a living or at least something that involved research. I've also always liked sort of teaching in an informal way, explaining things to people. And so turns out there's a job where you have to do both of those things. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, so I had a really good advisor um, for undergrad research at the EPA who taught me how the PhD process works. And so I uh, yeah, applied to some programs, got into one I liked and uh, yeah, came down here after that. And then looking ahead, is there something that you're hoping to further research that you haven't in your time as a professor? Um, I don't really see moving in a drastically new area. I think we'll probably keep working on water reuse for quite some time. One of the reasons I like working on water reuse is it's, um, it's kind of the final frontier of water treatment. My earlier research when I was an undergrad and then like first half of my PhD or so was on um, more like conventional drinking water treatment. So how do we turn something like river water and, and make it into tap water? That's a pretty mature field at this point. It's not to say that there's not active, ongoing research on, on drinking water treatment, but there's just fewer huge problems to solve versus water reuse, where we have you know a, a pretty disgusting starting material that we have to turn into something that people are happy to drink. So I think that there is going to be enough problems to work on in that area to keep me busy for at least a decade or two. So I don't know. I've never, to be honest with you, never been a big fan of trying to make really long-term research plans because I just think it's kind of hubris. Like science is going to do what it does. It's going to constantly change and evolve. And so even, you know, what I'm working on now, I don't know that I envisioned these specific projects when I first started five years ago here. You know, I had some general ideas of what I wanted to study, but, um, you know, it's, it's not like I sat down and made a five or 10 year plan and have been following that to the letter. I just sort of try to stay flexible and study new problems as they emerge. And, uh, there's kind of a trend in research of just chasing the money of, of whatever is a, a trendy topic that's getting a lot of funding. So right now, for instance, in, in environmental engineering and environmental chemistry, um, one of the biggest ones is PFAS, perfluorocompounds, right? The uh, so-called forever chemicals that end up in, in water in all kinds of places. And it's bad. It's a real problem. It's very bad. Uh, and there's a lot of research funding for it right now. But I've, I've kind of stayed out of that area because it's, uh, it's pretty crowded. Um, so I don't want to be the, you know, 101st researcher on this the same problem um so so i've kind of kind of stayed out of that but um water reuse though i think i'll be working on for for quite some time it's actually i'm curious what's the process like when you're trying to find new projects are you just kind of staying updated on like new research and papers and then if you see something yeah i mean like so this was i was really scared of this when i was about to start my job um because you know once you become the professor you have to generate the research ideas right versus in grad school you get to some degree, at least kind of told what to do. That sounds scary, having to come up with the idea. Yeah, yeah, it was scary at first. Um, once you get the ball rolling, for every question you answer, it always generates three new questions, right? But that first year or two, it was a little bit scary. Like, how do I come up with research ideas? And you can't just, like, sit down and squeeze your brain really hard until an idea comes out. Like, they kind of just appear when they do. So, I don't know. I just try to, like, keep an open mind and a constant, like, ongoing Gmail thread to myself when I have an idea that I jot down real quick. And, you know, 90% of them never get followed up on, but occasionally one seems promising. And so then, you know, if, uh, if a new student is starting in the lab or something like that, sometimes I'll pull that thread up and uh, remember, you know, some thought I had a year and a half ago about um, a problem to potentially study. So, yeah, I don't know. There's no... Uh, systematic way maybe of generating research ideas apart from, I guess sometimes you can just, 
uh, have things come to you as you're digesting other people's research. So reading journal papers can be good for this, but the best thing is probably going to conferences um, and hearing people present about their own research, and, and often it will spark some, some thought. Usually it's kind of two mental things coming together at once of like hearing somebody talk about some research problem and then being reminded of something that you know from a class or a prior project of yours and realizing that that might be a useful approach for this problem somebody else is studying or, or something along those lines. Um, it's, it's not an exact process, though. It definitely requires some luck. Thanks for listening to Be Seen, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at the Sony Astani Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Happy Earth Week, everyone. Tune in next time and remember, let's clean the earth together. It's the only one we have.